and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for listening. This is a special Tour de France rest day edition of the podcast here. If you're anything like me, you've been watching the Tour de France uh, pedal stroke by pedal stroke almost constantly since it started a week ago. And then, of course, as soon as you're done watching it, you go and you read all about it and you read the analysis and you get on your Fantasy League page and you talk about what might be happening the next day, etc., etc., etc. Well, today is the rest day. They have two days built into the three-week-long tour, uh, days when, when they review and talk about what's happened so far and you have all the big takeaways from the first week or so, and that's great, and I read all those things today. Um, but there's no actual action to watch. So that leaves me the time to do the research and, of course, get with all of you here to record a podcast. So I'm excited to be able to do that right now. I won't give you any spoilers on the Tour de France, by the way, which I realize is a fairly ridiculous thing to say because if you're actually a fan of the Tour de France enough that you don't want a spoiler on it, I'm sure that you wouldn't be listening to this podcast prior to watching the Tour de France. But I will say this. Uh, it's been a really good race so far. Uh, the Tour de France is kind of like... Uh, NASCAR or bike racing in general is kind of like NASCAR. When I first became a bike racer, I kind of thought that bike racing was going to be like running because I had been a runner for a really long time and that everybody got on their bikes and you got on the starting line and you just all went and you saw who could get the finish line fastest. And that's not what bike racing is like at all. It's like auto racing. It's like, it's about drafting and technique and strategy and fueling um, and things like that. Um, so, so it's much, much different from running, I found. But anyway... Uh, also, like NASCAR, people tend to get real hung up on watching the crashes and tend to like watching the crashes and stuff like that. But real NASCAR fans and real cycling fans actually don't like to see the crashes. Uh, not only because it's celebrating someone's misfortune, um, but also because crashes sort of ruin um, the race. Uh, they take people out of the race and they hurt people in the race that... that otherwise would be performing at really high levels, and you don't get to see them perform at that very high level because they're injured from the crash. Um, well, the races so far uh, in the Tour de France, the, the stages so far in the Tour de France, uh, with one very notable exception to, to one of the favorites in the race, it's been mostly crash-free so that the racers can actually race, and you can see who truly is the strongest uh, and the craftiest amongst the bike racers. And so it's been fun to watch. As you probably know, the uh, track and field Olympic trials just concluded yesterday, as a matter of fact, and there were some pretty exciting performances there as well. Um, and then the swimming tra- uh, uh, trials, Olympic trials, uh, wrapped up last weekend and some some pretty amazing and exciting performances there as well. The Rio Games are coming up next month. Uh, we will, of course, talk a lot about the Olympic Games as they're going on, even though I personally have a little bit of a, a mixed set of emotions about the Olympic Games. I've always loved the Olympics. Of course, I'm an endurance athlete, and the Olympics is like the pinnacle of our sport. Um, But uh, I am very nervous about Zika and the underpreparedness of Brazil. I've read all the same things you have and that sort of thing. So uh, I'm sort of interested and and nervous and, and... I don't know. We'll see. Uh, But we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, once the Olympics actually begin. Um, So tonight, I had wanted to talk a little bit about racing mindsets. After the stuff we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, a few people had suggested that that maybe I could talk a little bit more about uh, what the research says about people who uh, have a good head for the game, um, people who are good at thinking through uh, and mentally engaging in in the process of endurance racing. Um, and I want to do that, and I was excited about that topic, and I think it's a really good and very useful topic, um, not only to research, but also, of course, to, to share. 
Um, and what I found, as I found before, um, is that when you start researching certain topics, a lot of times it ends up leading to much bigger topics and much larger things. Um, and so I've decided to split this up a little bit. Um, this time, I'm going to talk a little bit about anxiety and sort of pre-race mindsets and what the uh, what the research says about that. Um, and then next time, I want to talk a little bit about um, a couple of in-race psychological things. Specifically, I'm going to talk about... Um, um, a concept known as flow that some of you might be familiar with, and also on uh, what are called mantras, um, the short phrases that people sometimes repeat to themselves in order to keep focus. So flow and mantras will be next time, but this time we're going to talk a little bit about anxiety. And what really inspired me to, to focus entirely on anxiety for an entire installment here um, was an article I read called Competitive Anxiety Responses in the Week Leading Up to Qu- Competition. Um, it was by a few researchers at the University of Wales in Cardiff in the UK, uh, at least what is currently the UK. Um, it, they took 82 athletes and they divided them into two separate groups uh, based upon their skill levels, uh, what they called national level and what they called club level. Um, and then they gave them anxiety inventories at one week out from a big target competition, two days out from a target competition, uh, one day out from a target competition, two hours out from a target competition, and 30 minutes out from a target competition. Now, quick note on this. If somebody had ever given me an inventory 30 minutes out from a competition, I don't know how well I'd be able to, to, to really give them a good feedback on that. But anyway, um, that's me, and maybe that's something that we can circle back to here in just a little while. Um, but in doing that, they found um, a couple of things. Um, first of all, they had a whole bunch of what I would consider to be non-useful takeaways about how athletes in both the national level and the club level got more nervous and less self-confident as the event grew nearer. Well, yeah, okay, that didn't really seem all that useful to me. Um, if anything... About the only thing that could do for any of us is to say, oh, well, you're getting nervous. Well, everybody gets nervous and everybody's self-confident goes down. Fantastic. Great. Um, but the other takeaway that I thought was interesting, the other thing that I thought was, was, was worthwhile um, was, was that they found that national athletes handled their nerves better than club athletes. Uh, that is, they had strategies that would help them to actually uh, deal with both their somatic um, and their cognitive anxiety, so stuff they were feeling in their body and things that were going on in their head. Um, and, and they had strategies to make those things better, make that anxiety better, or channel that anxiety in such a way that it was actually useful and not hindering to their performance. Now, there's several studies that have pointed out that, that being over-nervous for something um, can, can, in fact, hinder your performance. Um, and so, so, of course, we want to avoid that, but it's this idea that national athletes, that, that experienced athletes, that, that high-level athletes are better at handling their nerves and handling that anxiety and channeling anxiety that, that I think made me want to focus more on anxiety here as a subject for the entire podcast. So building on that second point um, and kind of researching and looking through and all sorts of other things, the, the one concept that I kept coming back to, and it's one that I was familiar with and you might be familiar with as well, um, was the concept of individualized zones of optional of optimal functioning, um, IZOFs, Individualized Zones of Optimal Functioning. Um, they were developed by a sports psychologist in the 1980s named Yuri Hannon. Um, and basically the idea 
is that every person, each athlete, has a zone of emotional arousal that helps them perform at their very best. Um, if you're below that zone, if you're not sufficiently emotionally aroused prior to going into an event, you're going to underperform. Likewise, if you're over-aroused, if you miss the mark, um, you're also going to, to uh, not achieve peak performance. Um, so there's this, there's this space, if you will, uh, this sweet spot, um, of, of emotional anxiety and arousal that will lead to your best performance. Um, and the interesting part of it was this. It's the individual part. Um, everybody has what you might call your own emotional formula that helps you achieve peak performance. And so there are people who um, have very low IZOFs, very low individualized zones of optional functioning. And otherwise, they can't be really emotionally aroused all that much if they're going to have peak performance. And so these are the people like that you see on the starting line of a race that, that are joking around and maybe even in the first mile of the race are like talking to their buddies or, or talking to friends and stuff like that, all that sort of thing. Then you have people that are kind of like the moderate level, um, the moderate IZOFs. And those are people that, that, that need some nervousness and need to have some amount of seriousness on the starting line, but at the same time can also tell jokes and they'll talk to you back to you and all that sort of thing. Uh, if you if you talk to them, um, and then of course you have people who 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 have high ZOFs, um, and those high ZOFs are people who um, who need to be very heavily emotionally aroused, and so they're the ones that you might see on the starting line of a race, either like super serious and kind of stone faced, or they might even be like and like banging themselves on the head and stuff like that. They need a high level of emotional arousal in order to achieve peak performance, um, and. Whatever the emotional formula is, it can have different emotions for different people. And so some people might need anger, um, and some people might need excitement, and some people might need to be serious, and some people might need to be joking, um, and, and, and all that sort of thing. So I, I think that that idea, uh, this idea of an individualized zone of optimal functioning, is an important idea to have. And, and I submit, if we circle back to that idea of elite athletes having a better handle on, on dealing with their anxieties... This is what elite athletes actually have. They know themselves via competition and via experience well enough to know what their ideal formula is, what their IZOF is, and they're able to put themselves in that place. Um, you know, for myself, and, and I only use myself as an example because I know myself well, not because I'm an exemplar for everybody else, but, but for myself... I can talk and make jokes on the starting line, but once the race starts, I really don't want to talk to people. Um, I've had people pull up next to me in the first mile of a race and say, hey, what's your goal for this race? Um, and I just kind of respond, I don't know. Um, the message being, leave me the hell alone, because I don't really want to talk about it right now because I'm trying to, to, to set my mind to, to what I'm doing here. Um, I use Trainer Road a lot right now when I ride indoors. Um, and, and some of you might use it as well. It's an online platform that I use for cycling um, um, uh, workouts. And I have found that there are times that the person who wrote the workout that I'm doing will put humor or, or dialogue into the workout in places where I really don't want humor and I don't really want dialogue. Um, and it's because they have a different IZOF than I do. They deal with pain and stress and effort using a different emotional set than, than what I use. Um, I think it's also important for me to think about as a coach too because I think a lot of times um, uh, athletes will, will, 
will, will do things that are getting them ready for a race, and we will see that as a coach, and it will feel wrong to us, or it'll feel as if that's not what they should be doing, or they're not going to perform well in the race because they're not taking it seriously enough, um, or, or they're taking it too seriously, or, or, or something else like that. Um, I have an athlete that uh, he and I were on the starting line of the same race a couple of years ago, um, and I saw him, and I said hello to him as he walked past me, and he didn't speak to me. Uh, and he was completely stone-faced, and he didn't speak to anyone <laughs> because that was the way that he got up for the race. Um, that was the way that he got into that place, that his individualized zone of optional functioning required him to be drawing on this super stone-faced serious thing. Um, and so it was important for me not to try and break him of that, not to try and, and impose upon him my own emotional toolkit. Um, likewise, I think it's important um, to... to be aware of it in a sense that you don't take on emotions that aren't helpful to you. And those are, by the way, the, the terms that, that, that Hannon used. He used the terms helpful and unhelpful um, because some people might have an emotion like anger, for example, that is helpful in a race uh, for them or prior to a race for them that's not helpful for other people, that's unhelpful for other people. Um, and what I mean by this is that we're surrounded um, with all sorts of quotations and all sorts of, of media um, where we hear about how it is that elite athletes get up for their game or get up for the competition. Um, and some of them might say, yeah, I always am super serious or I always listen to music or I always do these various other things. Um, the way that they get up for the game might be different from the way that we need to get up from the game. And so we shouldn't take somebody else's strategy and download it to ourselves because it might not work because everybody's zone of optional functioning is individualized. Um, so I guess the, the, the big takeaway from this whole long thing of talking about IZOS is to say that, that, that knowing yourself um, and experimenting with different emotional personas, if you will, um, different psychic toolkits um, is ultimately what's going to, to help you find the ideal approach to anxiety, um, the one that will lead ultimately to, to peak performance. Um, now, I mentioned coaches just a second ago, and I, I found, and I have to mention here, I feel, I found an interesting study, too, about coaches and nerves. Um, it was called The Relationship Between Coaches and Athletes' Competitive Anxiety and Their Performance. And um, I don't know how many folks that are listening are actual coaches, um, but it is worthwhile to keep in mind Um the, the researchers, uh, they interviewed 540 players and 60 coaches from 60 different soccer teams. So it was a pretty massive study, 540 players and 60 coaches. Um, and it also said that they, they talked to four starters and one bench player. And so they tried to get sort of a diversity of people um, on the team. Um, and they found that there was a positive, significant relationship between the coach's anxiety level and the sports competition anxiety level in the athletes. Now, a significant relationship, uh, a positive significant relationship. Let's real quick side note. What that means when you say that something has a significant relationship means that they occur um, commonly often. Um, and so, for example, if I was doing research on my son's sleeping habits and I said that um, and I started researching, okay, when do they have bad sleep? When do they not sleep well? Um, and I found that um, on for 10 days they don't sleep well, um, each 10, day, 10 nights that they don't sleep well, they, did, they ate eggs one of those days. Um, 
one out of ten, they ate eggs and they had a bad night. Well, that wouldn't really be a significant relationship between eating eggs and having a bad night. However, if I found that on days when they ate eggs, uh, eight out of ten times, uh, they would actually have a bad night, that would be a significant relationship. And and we would certainly not be feeding them a whole lot more eggs. So the point here being is that, that they found... Um, in this study, that when coaches had high anxiety levels, um, that also the athletes had high anxiety levels. And so there seems to be a relationship there. Now, it's not certain whether whether it goes from athlete to coach or coach to athlete. That is, are the coaches nervous because the athletes are nervous or are the athletes nervous because the coach is nervous? Um, but one way or another, I think what it means for me as a coach is that if I have an athlete who doesn't perform well because of anxiety – um, the last thing I need to do is to pile on that anxiety by being nervous myself. Um, I need to present a great deal more confidence, um, perhaps, in, the, in their feeling. Um, the study also found, by the way, a negative significant relationship, a negative significant relationship, so that's like an inverse relationship to a, to a significant degree, uh, between coaches' anxiety levels and the performance levels of the athletes. In other words, the more nervous the coaches were, the worse their athletes tended to perform. That's a gigantic takeaway. Um, and they also found a negative significant relationship between the athletes' competitive anxiety level and their athletic experience. Now, um, in other words, um, athletes who had more experience tended to be less nervous and tended to report lower levels of anxiety. Now, side note on this, this has been found um, in several other studies that I found. I found one on gymnasts, I found one on swimmers, I found one on tennis players um, that all found that, that uh, people who had more experience in the sport and had more competitions under their belt had much lower levels of anxiety. Um, and, uh, again, circling back to what we talked about before, I would submit that, that the reason for that is not just the experience itself, but also because they've learned how to actually deal with their anxiety. Uh, and they, they've discovered intentionally or unintentionally, um, the, the ingredients of their IZOF. Um, one other thing that I think is kind of worth mentioning too, um, has to do with energy drinks and nerves. I happened across this other study. Um, it was called the use of energy drinks in sport, perceived ergogenicity and side effects in male and female athletes. Um, and they took 53 men. It was from a South American university. Uh, they took 53 men, 37 women, um, and there were soccer players, there were climbers, swimmers, basketball players, rugby players, volleyball players, tennis players, hockey players, all sorts of different athletes here of, of, that made up this 90 uh, athletes that they did. Um, and they gave them each about three milligrams per kilogram of weight of caffeine in an energy drink type form. Um, and so in a kind of sweet drink type form. Now, side note on this, this was called a study on energy drinks. Really, it's a study on caffeine um, that's given in an energy drink form. As you probably know, caffeine is the only ingredient in energy drinks that's ever been shown to have any sort of correlation with performance. Um, and so all the other herbs that energy drinks put together and all the secret blends and all that other garbage, um, none of that stuff has ever been shown to have any effect on, on uh, endurance performance. And so knowing that, the researchers basically said, okay, we're going to study energy drinks, but what we're really going to study is, is caffeine. Uh, and so they gave caffeine to, to, to everyone. Uh, three milligrams of, of um, per Three milligrams per kilogram of weight of caffeine. For me, for example, that would be around 210 to 220 milligrams of caffeine, 
depending on how in shape I am, which I'm not totally in shape right now. Um, and, and that would be equal to about two cups of coffee. Um, so we're not talking about a massive, massive amount of, of caffeine. It would also be equal to about one big can of like monster energy drink or something like that. I think that's about how much they have. Um, I think they have about 125 milligrams per 50 for 25 milliliters. And so one of those large cans, one of those 50 milliliter cans, uh, would have about 230, 250, something like that. Anyway, but they found as energy drink companies love to point out an increase in performance between three and 7%, um, which is not a big surprise. It kind of falls in line with a lot of the other caffeine studies that I talked about when we talked about fatigue. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, they ran further in their team competitions. So, like soccer players that had used the energy drink and had the caffeine, um, actually ran farther than their teammates who hadn't, uh, and their teammates who had had placebos. Um, and they had ran at higher intensities as well. It was actually sort of cool. The way that they measured how far they were running was by putting GPS devices on them. Um, and you might have seen that 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 coaches actually do this now. Um, the University of Alabama last season was actually measuring the fatigue levels of their players by putting GPS devices on their shoulder pads um, and seeing how fast and how far they ran during the games and they said as long as they were running as far and as fast week after week then they weren't too fatigued Um, but if they found that the entire team was actually not running as far and as fast that suggested some sort of fatigue and they needed to address that in practice but anyway that's exactly what this study did as well they they put GPS on the athletes and they uh, measured how far and and, and how fast they ran in competition anyway um, they also found increased jump height for basketball players, um, increased muscle force and power for climbers, um, increased, increased swimming speed for sprinter swimmers, um, uh, hit force and accuracy for, accuracy for volleyball players, um, and tennis players that they gave some caffeine to in the form of an energy drink actually scored more points. So the takeaway here, as we've talked about before, is that caffeine, yeah, it actually can make you a little bit better, um, within reason. Um, they said, quote, the, the leader of the, the, the study said, quote, athletes felt they had more strength, power, and resistance with the energy drink than with the procedure drink, placebo drink, unquote. Um, but the important thing, and the reason why I bring it up in the context of this conversation, is to say that energy drinks also increase the frequency of insomnia, nervousness, and the level of stimulation in the hours following the competition. In other words, if you're somebody who's prone to nervousness, it's going to make you more nervous. And so when you reflect on the IZOF, when you think about your optimal performance, emotional bag, um, if nervousness is not a part of that, um, if you're already kind of in that optimal place, if you take an energy drink or for that matter, any other amount of caffeine, um, it's probably going to push you into too high of an anxiety level and could potentially shove you out of your optimal zone. Um, so something kind of important to keep in mind, um, you know, in the fatigue series that, that, that we did a couple of months ago here on this podcast, we talked about the link between the mind and the body. And, and of course that's kind of underlying this entire conversation about anxiety here. Um, but in keeping that in mind, um, Sure, you want to prepare your body to, 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 for a peak performance. And so you may be thinking, oh, well, peak performance, let me give myself some caffeine. Well, if you screw up your mind by giving yourself too much caffeine prior to the, the event, then um, you're going to screw up your body's performance as well. Now, they found no difference, by the way, between the male and female subjects here. Um, there was 3 to 7% across the board, um, and it didn't differ from males and females. Um, but I do think it's important to point out with that um, that they did control the amount of caffeine they're giving everybody based upon size. 
and a can doesn't do that. It's not like you have a can of Monster Energy Drink and they have, oh, well, this can is for people who weigh 120 pounds and this one's for people who weigh 170 pounds and this one's for people who weigh 220 pounds. That's not the way that they they market them. And so um, they did three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight, um, which is not a super duper amount. It would be basically one can for an average sized person. Um, But if you're smaller than average... um, Taking some caffeine, that much caffeine, the amount of caffeine that's in a can of energy drink might actually give you so much anxiety that it would push you out of your IZOF. It would actually push you to too high a levels of arousal uh, and therefore thwart your, your uh, performance. Um, one final word to say on this, and I've already said this. Um, I've already said this just a minute ago, but, but I think it's kind of worth mentioning again here um, just for people who do feel overwhelmed and people who do feel a lot of performance anxiety. Um, and that's that's that there is a strong negative correlation in multiple studies between experience and anxiety. Um, Gymnasts, swimmers, tennis players, lots and lots and lots of different athletes and different studies, basketball players, have shown that over time, as you compete more, as you become more comfortable, as you train more, um, you will in fact become uh, less anxious going into a competition. Now, speaking for myself, I've been doing endurance competitions for 25 years. I still get nervous before endurance competitions. Um, but again, circling back, I do feel as if I, I have a good sense of, of how to manage my nervousness and my anxiety. Um, and I think that's what, what actually experience brings. Now, I want to wrap up tonight by talking about just a couple of quick things. Um, first thing I want to mention is something about load rates. Now, there's a few themes that have developed over time um, in our podcast here, and here we are in episode 16, and we've been doing it for more than six months now, which is kind of incredible. Yeah, go Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Um, but uh, but one of the things that's developed is the idea of load rates, at least over the course of the past little while. Um, why is it that people get injured? Um, and of course, the reason why is because I've been injured throughout the entire time I'm doing this, I say through clenched teeth. Um, now, positive news on that front not that I want to make it all about me, but I do feel, knock on wood, as if I'm moving in a positive direction as far as, as, as my own status goes. But we'll see. I'm, I'm very tentative, but, but I am trying to be uh, very positive about, about where my, what my current injury situation is here. So anyway, um, but you'll recall that we talked a couple of weeks ago um, in episode 14, so I guess it was a month ago, um, about a study in which they took, looked at 249 runners, all of whom were heel strikers, and they found the lowest rates of injury among those who were lightest on their feet. Um, in other words, the impact load was the biggest determinant of injury. You remember I said that they, they talked to this one woman who had the, the lowest levels of impact load that they'd ever seen, and they said she looked like an insect running on water when she would run. And she had done multiple marathons and even ultra marathons um, and had never in her entire life uh, of running had been injured, which is brilliant and awesome and something that certainly we would all like to have. Um, and so with that in mind, I, I found a study this week um, – uh, that just came out, and it was entitled 
Footwear matters. Influence of footwear and foot strike on load rates during running. Um, and it was by three folks, Rice, Jameson, and Davis, uh, at the American College of Sports Medicine. They took 29 runners, uh, 22 men and seven women, um, and they had the runners run in their regular footwear with their normal foot strike. Um, they just said, here, run this 30-meter stretch here, and we're going to film you, and we're going to, 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 to measure load rates and, and see who it is that's coming down hard. Um, so they, they had them run with the regular footwear with their normal foot strike, and they, of course, measured the load. Now, the reason why they did it and the reason why this matters um, is because a lot of people have claimed that minimal shoes are actually better when it comes to load rates, that if you wear minimal shoes, um, that you will be lighter on your feet. Um, and there is some evidence to suggest that people are, in fact, more efficient when they run when they're wearing minimal shoes. Um, that idea that too much cushioning leads to... Uh, higher load rates and therefore higher injury is counterintuitive as that may seem. Um, that actually fueled the uh, the minimalist movement that we talked about with uh, Will Kramer way back when we were first starting this podcast. Um, so, you know, the the it was it was really a look kind of at minimal shoes here. Um, and then they also, um, you know, you you might be familiar that that Newton in particular, but a bunch of shoe companies, but Newton in particular claims that forefoot striking is better. Um, and that you'll be less injured if you strike on the forefoot rather than being a heel striker. Um, Newton has really made a business out of this because they, they put those lugs on the front of their shoes that are designed to be almost like targets for your feet so that when your feet hit the ground, it develops proprioception and it encourages you to become more of a forefoot striker because they say that will lead to lower rates of injury. So that that idea is what sort of drove the researchers here to do this research so everybody brought their own shoes they didn't their they went in their normal their, their normal strides uh and their normal stride style um and they wanted to see who had the highest load rates and so they ended up after watching all 29 runners run splitting them into three categories one was rear foot strike and standard shoes now standard shoes would be just the regular old normal shoes that you buy at your running specialty store. Um, they, they wouldn't be minimal shoes. They wouldn't be uh, shoes with, with low drops. They wouldn't be racing flats. Just your regular old standard training shoes, your Brooks Ghost, your Nike Air Pegasus, um, your, your uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of another kind of very common one. But anyway, um, just your regular old shoes. Um, uh, and then they also had forefoot strike in standard shoes and forefoot strike in minimal shoes. So those three categories, rear foot strike in standard shoes, forefoot strike in standard shoes, forefoot strike in minimal shoes. Um, now, it was of note that they didn't find anybody or they didn't have anybody in their study that they considered to be a rear foot striker in minimal shoes. Um, is that because rear foot strikers don't tend to choose minimal shoes or is that because uh, minimal shoes encourage you not to rear foot strike? We don't know. But anyway, what they found was that in standard shoes, so shoes that weigh over 10 ounces and have plenty of cushioning and and all that sort of thing, the load rates were the same for both forefoot strikers and for rear foot strikers. And so it kind of backs up that other study that we talked about a month ago, that that it doesn't matter if you're a heel striker or a forefoot striker, at least from an impact load place, that that, um, the way that you run... Uh, whether you're striking with your forefoot or striking with your, or your rear foot um, is not going to change the amount of, of force that you're impacting the ground with. Um, however, they also found load rates were lower when running in minimal shoes with a forefoot strike compared to running in standard shoes with either foot strike. That is, forefoot strike landed more softly in minimal shoes than it did in standard shoes. 
um, and it also landed. Um, so minimal shoes basically led to a softer landing. Um, now, given what that other study said, given that that study that we talked about last month said that load rates are the primary determinant of whether you get injured, and then this study suggests that when you're wearing minimal shoes, you have lower load rates, it would seem to therefore follow that wearing more minimal shoes, at least to a degree, I'm not talking about barefoot shoes here, but more minimal shoes would lead to lower load rates and therefore lower uh, levels of injury. Um, I, I'm, I'm not ready to go out and recommend that everybody start wearing you know seven ounce shoes when they're training. Of course not. And I'm not ready to make to make that commitment myself. Um, but it is pretty striking research. I think when you take those two things together, clearly um, it appears, at least from the study, that footwear alters the load rates during running, even with similar foot strike patterns. Um, now there is more research to be done. I specifically think about what about people who are rear foot strikers with minimal. Like I said, they, there was not a category of people in there, 29 runners that had that. And also I feel like letting the subjects choose their own running shoes kind of presents a problem. It may be that those people who are already light on their feet are choosing the minimal footwear, not the minimal footwear is making you lighter on your feet. Um, and so I, I do look forward to, to follow-up studies on this and I, and, I, and I hope they'll be coming around. Um, the other kind of one quick side note that I wanted to add here that, that uh, did come up that I wanted to make sure everybody was aware of, we are now into racing season if you're a triathlete um, and, and peak racing season if you're a runner um, and, and peak racing season if you're a cyclist. Um, and so I did want to mention something that a conversation that came up on the Atlanta Triathlon Club uh, Facebook page recently. Um, there has been a surge over the course of the past three or four years of uh, private companies that will offer IVs to people um, as a means of getting rehydrated. And there's essentially two kind of marketing tacks they take. One of them is like post-hangover. Um, if you're feeling hungover, come in and get an IV and you're totally going to feel better. That's not what we talk about on this podcast, so whatever. Um, they can do whatever they want to do with that. But the second way that they actually market themselves is to say – after a major athletic event, it's going to improve your recovery to rehydrate more quickly if you come in and get an IV. Um, and it's become such a common thing that actually there is a, a major race production company here in Georgia um, that has now taken on as a sponsor one of these companies that offers post-race rehydration IVs. That's against the rules. Um, the World Anti-Doping Authority, WADA, um, to which the United States Association of Triathlons, USA Triathlon, um, and USATF, USA Track and Field, are signatories, um, uh, has prohibited any sort of IV to be given somebody for the purposes of rehydration unless that person is hospitalized. So if you go into a medical tent after a race, be it a 5K, a 10K, a triathlon, a half Ironman, an Ironman, whatever it happens to be, and somebody gives you an IV, you are breaking the WADA code and you are liable to be penalized for that under doping rules. Um, and the WADA actually clarified that specifically this year. Um, it's always been against the rules that you could have an IV uh, without hospitalization. Um, 
Now, if you get into the hospital and they give you an IV, of course, that's okay. The WADA is not worried about that. They're not trying to get in the way of, of your doctor and anesthesiologist doing the things they need to do in order to make you better if, in fact, you're in the hospital. But talking about in the medical tent afterwards or going down the street um, to, to some, some store that offers these sorts of things privately, that's prohibited. Now, the reason why it's been, always been prohibited and it's been prohibited for years and years and years is because people would use that as a means of masking drug use, of masking the use of performance-enhancing drugs. Um, and a lot of people started to do it thinking, oh, well, I'm not using performance-enhancing drugs, and so it's just for the purpose of hydration, so it's okay. The WADA made very clear this year in 2016 that no, it's not okay, um, that that it's, it's very much against the rules, even if you're doing it for the purposes of rehydration. Um, and one of the things they said in, in their clarifying statement is that IV rehydration has not been shown medically or scientifically to be a effective and faster way of rehydrating someone after an athletic event um, than than simply doing oral hydration. And so because of that, you can't do it. Um, so the reason why I mention it here is because I do think it's very timely and I think it's very important. Um, and I think I've known people who, or at least I've met people, um, who, who that was sort of their standard practice. Uh, they would finish half Ironman, and regardless of how the race went, they would go to the medical tent, they'd request an IV, and they'd get one. That's breaking the rules. Um, that's against the World Anti-Doping Authority Associate, or Authority uh, rules. Um, and it's considered to be the same as taking a performance-enhancing drug. Um, it came actually to mind, and, and lest you think that the, the, the rules are getting glossed over, uh, it came to mind because... because uh, in addition to that conversation on the Atlanta Triathlon Club page, um, Ben True, who is uh, one of the top runners in the United States uh, and who failed to make the Olympic team this year, which is too bad. Um, a lot of people are big fans of his. Um, he uh, performed miserably in the 10,000 meters a week ago um, in the Olympic trials, and it was in large part because he was dehydrated. Uh, and they took him into the medical tent afterwards, and he was on the verge of collapse, um, and they couldn't give him an IV because that's against the rules. And so they packed him in ice and had him drink a whole bunch and eventually kind of kind of stabilized the system here. Um, so that's what the elites do, and that's what we uh, age groupers, sub-elites, are expected to do as well. Um, so keep that in mind. Last thing I want to say is on the next podcast here, uh, we have an interview. Uh, I like to interview people. I think it's always fun when we interview people. And next time I'm super excited because we're interviewing Brad Smith. Now, Brad Smith is is a, a fantastically interesting person who I'm, I'm really excited to, to get to know a little bit better and to talk to um, in the next uh, podcast. Um, uh, he's married, as it happens, to Carrie Smith, who is a physical therapist that we talked to a couple of months ago. Um, but that's not what we're going to be talking to him about. Instead, we're going to be talking to him about a paratriathlon. Uh, Brad uh, is in a wheelchair as a result of an accident uh, of a wreck that took place a few years ago when he was on his bike. Um, and he has not given up his sporting life as a result of that wreck, uh, but rather has found a new sporting life in paratriathlon. Um, and he's a member of the Atlanta Triathlon Club and uh, has actually started um, a group of paratriathletes, a subgroup inside the Atlanta Triathlon Club. Um, and later on this month, at the end of July, he is going to be uh, hosting uh, a two-day camp 
uh, to introduce people to paratriathlon. So sticking with the theme that we've developed over the course of the past six months here of inclusion um, and spreading the benefits of endurance sports to a wider variety of people, we're going to be talking to Brad about that. Um, How do you... um, spread the benefits of endurance sports, the enrichment that takes place as a result of taking part in endurance sports uh, to people who uh, are in wheelchairs or have prosthetics or something else like that. So I'm super excited about that. The reason why I mention it, of course, is if you have questions for Brad, make sure that you go on our Facebook page um, or you tweet me or send me an email over the course of the next short while and let me know. That brings us once again to the end of our podcast. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please go on iTunes and give us a review, give us a rating. That will uh, help more folks find the podcast and hopefully bring us more listeners here. Um, Don't forget to hook up with us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. Um, Go to our blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook. That's where most people find us, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, ITL Coaching, itlcoaching.com or... Um, at ITL Coaching on Twitter uh, and Facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And of course, as always, don't forget about my wife, the Travel Planner. If you're looking to travel to Ironman Maryland, if you're looking to travel to Ironman Wisconsin, if you're looking to travel to Ironman World Championships in Kona, uh, she is the person you want to talk to in order to to make all those accommodations for you. You focus on training, she will get all the accommodations done for you. Uh, You can find her at Facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner MEV, or you can drop her a line at Casey, that's K-A-C-I-E, at UGA.edu. Of course, I can give you all that information if you simply want to find us on Facebook or on Twitter instead. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with Brad Smith.